0: Well, um, let me start with maybe an illustration here. So many of you know, if you know me at, uh, well, you know that I love everything related to the NASA moon missions. I'm kind of a little bit of a nerd when it comes to space travel. It's like one of my favorite things. So one of the first steps towards the moon was Project Mercury. And this was the first American human spaceflight program that ran from 1958 until 1963. Now, this was the, the United States entrance into the space race. The Soviets had launched a satellite, Sputnik 1, on October 4th, 1957. And it would caused great panic that the Russians would gain military superiority during the Cold War by developing technology to go to space. So there was incredible pressure to create a manned space program in order to assert Western dominance in the skies. And the, the space race became like this proxy battle between the Democratic West and the Communist Eastern Bloc. Enter the Mercury Seven. On April uh, 9th, 1959, after rigorous evaluations and interviews and testing, NASA held a press conference to introduce the first seven astronauts in American history. Gus Grissom, Alan Shepard, Scott Carpenter, Wally Shearer, Deke Slayton, John Glenn, and Gordon Cooper. Now, they were instant celebrities. In fact, these seven men were more than celebrities. They were treated as heroes, almost godlike, the best of the best, going out to defeat the Russians to ensure victory. Even at this press conference, the reporters and the photographers put down their notebooks and their cameras to give them a standing ovation. You see, what's interesting about this is that these, the Mercury 7 hadn't done anything yet. <laughs> but their willingness to risk it all, to even say, I'll do that, was viewed as the pinnacle of bravery and sacrifice. There's a famous book that kind of recalls this era, it's called The Right Stuff, it's by Tom Wolfe, and he compared these astronauts to the single combat warriors of the ancient world. Single combat is when you send out your best warrior into no man's land to fight one-on-one with the best of the best from the enemy. And in that single combat, whoever wins secures victory for your side or emboldens your side so much that they charge in and run the enemy off in a total victory. Full scale retreat. Now, this is the interesting thing about this. The chances in single combat, the chances of defeat are incredibly high. The stakes are high. Only one warrior will be left standing. And so the unique thing about single combat, and this is what we see in even this, the the Mercury, Project Mercury. The unique thing about it is that the warrior is typically praised as a hero before the battle. Because you might not make it. (laughs) And so you get all the glory before you even do anything. It was the brave act of stepping to the plate to go toe-to-toe with the enemy's best to the best that was worthy of affirmation and admiration. And, And since it was possible you wouldn't make it, it was common in the ancient world to have parades in your honor, special medals and awards, gaining favor of the people before the battle even started. Now, the Bible paints a very different picture. When the Israelites... Because this phenomenon happens in the Bible. When when the Israelites were pitted in battle against the Philistines, for example, we see one of the most famous examples of the ancient practice of single combat, David and Goliath. But the biblical account describes David and Goliath radically differently. And it actually, in many ways, foreshadows what is to come. 1 Samuel 17 describes Goliath like this. He's a champion named Goliath who was from Gath. He came out from the Philistine camp. His height was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of armor, a scales of bronze weighing 125 pounds. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. He was full of boasting and pride in this single combat. Yet David is portrayed totally different. When you read 1 Samuel 17, David is barely old enough to leave home alone. His brothers make fun of him. They ridicule his courage as he talks about the enemy. He he, he can't even fit in Saul's armor. They put it on him and it's dragging on the ground and he takes it off. And he says, I can't use this. And what David says is as he looks, he stands there on the battlefield with Goliath. Even Goliath ridicules him and doubts. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he curses David to the Philistine gods. And yet David stands alone and he stands out there with his purpose that he makes so clear. David looks at Goliath and he says, you come, to, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. And David slings one stone and fells the giant Goliath. Leading the Israelites to a total victory. Friends, in the same way, our text this morning describes the account of the messianic king in the line of David. Jesus Christ. Who went to the cross in the face of ridicule and scorn, even being rejected by his own people, the very people he died for, and yet as our representative and substitute, paying the price for our sins, saving us from the wrath of God, the single, he single-handedly defeats sin and evil and death, our champion who declares, it is finished. This is what we're going to read this morning. Is seeing in our text this portrayal Of the intensification of the rejection of Jesus by his own people. Even as he's exalted as king. Lifted up on a throne of glory to become the savior of the world. So, grab your Bible. Open to John 19. We're going to be in... John 19 today, if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand, because we'd love to have you see the text here with me. We're going to read the entire chapter today, and since it's fairly long, we're going to go section by section and read the text section by section. So here's the flow. You'll see it on the screen. Okay, The flow of the text first tells us in verses 1 through 16 about Jesus' sentencing before Pilate. Then, verses 70 to 27 depict Jesus' crucifixion. Then we see in 28 to 37, the death of Jesus. Then lastly, in 38 to 42, the burial of Jesus. So here's how we're going to go through it. Piece by piece is we're going to look at the sentencing, crucifixion, death, and burial. All right, let's go. We'll jump right in here. So let's pick it up in verses 1 through 16 and read the text together. And then we'll talk about this sentencing. John 19, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Okay, this is where we're going to stop. These verses show the devastating results of the Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus. Their cards are finally out on the table. We finally see their real motives, their real allegiance. So let me explain what's going on here. Jesus first is beaten And whipped by the Roman soldiers. He's given a crown of thorns, which is likely the long spikes from the date palm tree. And then they would weave those vines together and put it on his head. And they gave him a purple robe to mock him. And the text says, very carefully here, it says, again and again, they said, hail, king of the Jews. You can imagine these soldiers in their barracks, they've got Jesus on his knees being beaten, bloodied, and they line up to pretend to pay him homage. And as they kneel down to pretend to pay him honor, they slap him in the face, laughing at the sorry sight of his bruises and bloody lip. Friends, Pilate does all this on purpose. The text records Pilate twice saying to the crowd, Standing outside. I find no basis for a charge against him. He keeps saying that to the people. And so, what he does, he he beats, he allows Jesus to be beaten, he dresses him like a mock king, and then he leads him outside and he says, Here's the man. Or some of your Bibles say, Behold, behold the man. Pilate dramatically presents Jesus as this sorry sight, this swollen, bruised, bleeding king with crown of thorns on his head and he looks at him and says, "Here's he, he's making a mockery of the Jewish people as his subjects. He's saying essentially to them how silly it is that they want to crucify this helpless man. And yet there's a deeper thing happening here. As the Apostle John records the details here on purpose, there's a, I, I mention frequently Don Carson who's written a commentary on this on the Gospel of John. He really puts this very pointedly. He says, here indeed is the man, the word made flesh. All the witnesses are too blind to see it at the time, but this man was displaying his glory. The glory of the one and only son in and through the disgrace, the pain, the weakness, the brutalization as, as he's on the path towards the cross. Here is the man, here's the savior, the champion, the champion going into battle to fight against sin, to defeat evil and death. And and, and as he points this out, there's this irony. The one who's to destroy sin, evil and death is here before them. And yet the chief priests and the Jewish officials shout, crucify. Here's where their real motives are revealed. Verse 7, if you go there in the text, tells us their real charge. Verse 7 describes this. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. In other words, their real charge against him, the thing they're really mad about is that he's a blasphemer in their eyes. Remember what Jesus said in John 14? No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You can imagine how this would agitate the Jewish leaders. You see, Jesus is now accused of two crimes in the text up to this point. In the eyes of the Jews... He's being accused of blasphemy because he's claiming to be the personal revelation of God himself. And then in the eyes of the Romans, he's being accused of insurrection, of being treasonous, of of trying to claim to be king. And so the irony of these two accusations is that they're actually true. He's not guilty, but they're true because he actually is the revelation of God. He actually is the real king. And here Pilate Is mocking the Jewish leaders by presenting this king, this bloodied and helpless man, as the only king they're likely to have. Now, this back and forth exchange results, and I don't want you to miss this, friends. It results in the chief priests and the the leaders of Israel selling the farm. Okay, look at verse 14. Pick it up in verse 14. I need you to hear how drastic this is. Pilate says to them, middle of verse, end of verse 14, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. This is unbelievable. That, These chief priests of the Jewish people would say, we have no king but Caesar. They are betraying their God publicly. Pledging their allegiance to Caesar. The leader of Rome, the emperor, even as they betray the son of God, the real king standing before them, they say, no, crucify him. The failure of the leaders of Israel has hit rock bottom here. They have reached a point of apostasy. Now, abandoning the very messianic hope they were called to steward throughout the generations. This was their moment. And they send him to be executed. This is ultimately fulfilling John 1, 11. If you remember our study of John 1, John 1, says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So here's the sentencing. Jesus is off now to be crucified. Let's go to that part of the text. So move now to verse 17 and following. Let's pick up and read more of what's happening here. Verse 17 through verse 27. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Stop there now. Um, Did you notice at the end of the section, the Apostle John referring to himself again? Remember, we've talked about this, that he says the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's kind of how he refers to himself. So Jesus here, as he's hanging on the cross, looks at John And gives him instructions to take care of Mary. This is amazing. I find this so striking that even to the end of his life. Even while hanging on the cross. Jesus cares most about others. That he's looking at this moment as the perfect sinless savior. Who walked in perfect obedience to the father. He loved also all the way to the end with perfect self-giving love even in the face of his own death. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about the background, about what's happening here with this crucifixion. Crucifixion was so brutal and humiliating that it was illegal for Roman citizens to be crucified, except in extreme circumstances by a direct order of the emperor. That was the only time a Roman citizen could be crucified. Now, this kind of death was only reserved for foreigners and slaves so what would happen is stripped naked beaten severely a criminal would hang on the cross in the hot sun for hours sometimes days and the person was required to carry the cross beam of the cross after their flogging losing blood and exhausted and then the soldiers would lay it down on the ground and you would lay down put your hands on it, and you'd either be nailed or tied to that crossbeam and then hoisted in the air to be fixed to the upright beam that was already in the ground. That was typical. Now the feet were then nailed or tied to the bottom and sometimes there's actually a seat that was fixed underneath that you could sit partially on and this was not a mercy this was to prolong your death. It allowed you to take a break for a moment, but it just made the agony go on longer. The cross was designed in every way to be the most torturous possible. To breathe, it was necessary to push up to expand the chest cavity. So, you'd In order to actually breathe, you'd have to push on those nails in your feet and pull on the nails in your hands, excruciating pain. And Jesus, here, was crucified in the middle of two other men, fulfilling what was written in Isaiah 53, verse 12. If you want a devotional this week, read Isaiah 52 and 53. 53, verse 12 says, He poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, even dying, as we know, the thief on the cross asked for forgiveness even in that moment. Making intercession for us as transgressors as well. Now, don't miss this, okay? The text says that Pilate fixed a notice above Jesus' head. And this is a, in a very important detail. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This was probably Pilate's final snub to the Jewish leaders. He's saying, you want to crucify your king? Fine. I'll put a sign above his head that says, this is what happens to the people. You want to be your leader, your king. And, and, and he's just, this whole irony comes forward here, mocking them by crucifying their supposed king. Now, John tells us this notice on purpose. Here's why. It fulfills a grander purpose in this in this scene it was written in the common languages of the day you see in the text here Aramaic was the common spoken language in the province of Judea so this is what people would talk every day Latin was the language of the Roman military and Greek was the universal language of the empire so in other words this was written in a language that anyone who walked by could read And for Pilate, he thinks that this serves to warn every passerby, don't offend the empire or this will happen to you. But what's really happening here is that this notice serves to proclaim to the nations that Jesus really is king. Okay, don't miss this. The cross is his exaltation. Displaying the glory of God in his love, his justice, his mercy, and his grace. And wrath is satisfied. Sin atoned for. Perfect reconciliation achieved here. And this truth in these languages is being proclaimed to the nations. This is the beginning of global missions. Can I put it that way? Even here at the cross, God achieving his plan to form a people... From every tribe, language, people, and nation. Here proclaimed for all to see. Okay, this is where we get to the fulfillment of this at the moment of Christ's death. So let's now go to the next part of the passage. Pick it up in verse 28. Seeing this unfold. Verse 28 says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I want you to see that this section here, as we pause there again, is bookended with the same phrase. So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. It starts at the beginning. That's also how it concludes. Verse 28, Jesus says these words, I am thirsty, and he's probably referring to, or it's drawing our attention back to Psalm 22. We read a little bit of it earlier this morning, but Psalm 22, right in the middle of the Psalm of David, where he's being abandoned, surrounded by enemies, and at the point of death, David says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. See, John had already quoted Psalm 22 earlier about the dividing of the clothes. So in the background in John's mind is this, is this Psalm. See, it's critical to see this. Jesus himself is, is drawing upon these messianic hopes, this, 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 this savior in the line of David. And John records us this, this for us to make this connection because Psalm 22, if you're not familiar with this Psalm, it begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know from the other gospels, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. He says, I'm thirsty. My tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth is the sense that he's walking that same path as what David described in this psalm. And yet the end of that psalm says this, they will proclaim his righteousness declaring to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Jesus says it is finished. And this is why Jesus declares at his last breath, these words, it's finished. His divine task is done. Here we see this declaration that he has been obedient to the uttermost. He's achieved our redemption as our representative and substitute. That's what John wants to draw our attention to in this fulfillment. Okay, now go down to the end. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. Second part. 36 and 37. The soldiers pierced Jesus' side. Now John is careful to note that there's an eyewitness that this happened. I think it was him. Remember, he doesn't exactly name himself himself. But we already know earlier he was standing there with Mary and, and Jesus' aunt and all these other women. And John was there watching this all unfold. And it says that an eyewitness saw that, 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 that confirms that Jesus was really dead. That there's this flow of blood and water as they pierce his side. And the footnotes of your Bible, if you look carefully, will tell you that the manner in which these things happen fulfills Exodus 12, Numbers 9, and then also Zechariah 12, these are passages about how you prepare the Passover lamb. Do you hear that? Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 are regulations about how you prepare the lamb for the Passover. And then Zechariah 12 is about passing judgment upon Israel and the cleansing for, from sin. I don't want you to miss the gravity of this, friends. Jesus, as our, as our Passover lamb, suffered and died for you. As the water and the blood flow from Jesus' pierced side, it reminds me of a classic hymn that you might know. It goes like this. You'll see it on the screen. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which flowed, be of sin, a double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Whoa. This is where we come to the burial. This is where we'll, we'll end. Go to verse 38 now. I want you to see how this story concludes. Okay, here's another quick bit of background for you. After crucifixion, the bodies were normally handed over to the next of kin, but not so in the case of criminals who were executed for insurrection. For this particular crime, the Romans would typically let the bodies hang on the crosses to be eaten by vultures. Driving home the point to an extreme level. Don't mess with Rome. But because the Jews didn't want the bodies there during this special Sabbath, it was necessary for someone to take Jesus and bury him. And so two men volunteer. And the shocking thing about these two men is that they're both prominent and wealthy members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And so you got to understand this. To approach Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus was doubly bold. They risk being pariahs in the Sanhedrin disowned by their own colleagues, but they also risk being viewed as a sympathizer in the eyes of the Romans. And so we see Joseph of Arimathea secure permission from Pilate for Jesus's body, while we also see a familiar face secure the spices, Nicodemus. John is so careful to point this out, and I love it. Remember him from chapter three? Jesus tells Nicodemus, You must be born again. Don't miss this. Here, Nicodemus reveals that he has been secretly on a journey. He has been coming to an understanding of who Jesus is after his conversation with the Lord. He's no longer in the darkness. The symbolism of him meeting with Jesus at night is that he's in darkness spiritually and now he steps out into the light to take the light of the world down from the cross and bury him. Whoa! See friends, both of these wealthy and influential men, they pull strings to make sure that Jesus is buried properly according to Jewish customs rather than what was normal is that a criminal like this would be thrown into a common grave with other criminals outside the city. Now, The spices were likely in a powder form, and what they would do is spread a a thick layer of these spices across this huge piece of linen, and then they would lay Jesus' body in it and wrap him up and then pack more of these spices around and underneath. And these were not for embalming, okay? The Jews didn't embalm the bodies of the dead. They were to simply mask the smell of the decay. And now there was a garden tomb, John's careful to note here, that was nearby, And out of necessity, because dusk is upon them, the Sabbath starts at sundown, they needed to finish the burial work before work ceased on the Sabbath. And here's where we end. At this most glorious and climactic moment, the text concludes with this sobering reality. Look at the last line. They laid Jesus there. After all that had happened in Jesus' ministry, the people who were healed, the miracles performed, all of his teaching about the kingdom of God, they laid Jesus there. After all, the disciples abandoned And deny Jesus after he's betrayed after all the arguments and betrayals of the Jewish leaders after all of the suffering and scorn and bearing the wrath of God and the weight of our sin here is Jesus laid quietly down wrapped head to toe in burial cloths the Savior of the world motionless having died so that we could live friends this text ends with a moment of pause With a moment of quiet, with a moment of heaviness and sorrow for an important reason. It is to put you and me face to face with the severity of our sin, to put us face to face, holding up a mirror to the ugly reality of the darkness of our hearts. To show how desperate our case is before a holy God. This moment of pause is important. And yet this pause also puts us face to face with the amazing love and sacrifice of a great Savior who would die in your place. It should be you in that grave. It should be me. As Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. And yet God has given us an indescribable gift in Jesus Christ as he died for me, as he died for you so that we could have life. So this is what I want to end with. It's a simple plea because as we land here. I want to to have us let the weightiness of Jesus' death on the cross hit us afresh today. This week, I want to encourage you, take time to contemplate To confess, to come to a point of of a deeper uh, understanding of of the, the reality of our sin, the inability to save ourselves. Take this moment of pause and use it to come into communion with God, to be encouraged about and a reminder of what Jesus has done for you. To sit in the weightiness of that ultimate sacrifice in God's good, beautiful, redemptive plan. Let 's take a moment and pray as we go to some more time of of worship of the Lord that 's what we, father this is what we want to sit in is in this glorious reality that the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the weightiness of our sin the the, the reality that we are so unable to save ourselves, the reality of the suffering, the scorn, the rejection that you went through so that we could be accepted, Lord, let that press upon us now.